Hi, movie lovers. Welcome to My Movie Story. I'm your host, Brian. Uh, thank you for tuning into this podcast. Uh, this is uh, very special because it's actually our very first episode, uh, and I'm joined by my very first guest, uh, which is an honour. A good friend of mine I've known for many years called Mac McNaughton. He lives in Perth, uh, 48 years old, with his longtime partner, Rob, of 18 years, and their cat, Ravage. <laughs> and uh, Mac likes to describe himself as a rock climbing flight attendant and a DJ. Um, so he's kind of like Batman, but gay, but not that rich. So there you go. That's Mac in a nutshell, really. <laughs> Some of his favorite films include Train Spotting, we've got The Shining, High Fidelity, most of Star Wars. Uh, that's a whole other conversation, so we don't have to get into that today. And pretty much anything by Wes Anderson as well. So that's uh, another thing we have in common. I love Wes Anderson as well. Favorite bands include New, uh, New Order, Underworld, Editors, Manic, Street Preachers, Talk Talk, and DJ Shadow. Um, personally, I haven't heard of most of them, but Mac is a music man, so I trust he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and in his spare time, like you said, he likes to rock climb. He also sells records online, um, does photography of his Transformers toys, and you can see behind him he's got a, an awesome collection there, uh, which might hint at what one of his films might be that we're going to talk about. Uh, so if this is your first time listening to the, to the podcast, welcome. And what it's all about is just talking to everyday moviegoers about the three movies that they love. Uh, before we talk about those, um, I'd like to throw it over to you, Mac. Welcome to the show, Mac. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. I'm honoured to be the first. <laughs> so am I, mate. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of great conversations over the years about movies and music and everything in between um, and obviously working on camps in the States and stuff. So, yeah, tell us a bit more about yourself. What's what's happening in your neck of the woods, Mac? Well, uh, our journey uh, actually started many years ago now, uh, taking part in the Camp America program where we were both camp counsellors uh, working on summer camps. Uh, I went to Vermont. You went to uh, where did you go? Uh, mine was in Pennsylvania. Uh, my first camp, okay. uh, special Vermont needs camp. Yep. yep, terrific. Yeah. And then we both became interviewers for many years. So uh, yeah, the uh, the opportunities to share your passions and enthusiasms and your artistic influences and obsessions uh, with with your kids, your campers, uh, and your co-counsellors as well. Um, we've we've both enjoyed uh, that benefit because we're both very passionate about our uh, art and movies and uh, music. So, yeah, our conversations are right up our alley, really, aren't they? Oh, for sure, mate, for sure. Like, you know, we but we but uh, all of our friends would probably tell us, you know, that we're the movie guys, we're the, the movie buffs. If they're out at a pub doing a movie, a trivia night, we might get that text or Facebook message saying, what's the answer to this question? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look. We know our stuff. We might not be experts on much else, but we know our movies. We love our movies. And that's what this show is all about. It's just talking about our, our love of film. Um, and, you know, listening, the people listening out there, um, you know, if you're interested in sharing your story, <clears throat> you can reach out through my um, all my contact details, which will be shared below this video or this audio file, however you're listening to it. So feel free to drop me a line and uh, maybe you could be on the show yourself one day. So just to set up what the show is all about, uh, it's three films, right? Now, how do you choose three films that you really like? That's hard because, you know, we all love so many films. Uh, but it's three really special categories. And 
The first one is our guest's all-time favourite film. You know, the film they just love more than any other, has a very special place in their heart. Uh, they could watch it a thousand times and probably never get sick of it. Uh, and they come back to it time and time again, you know, so it's a real rewatchable sort of film for them. Uh, the second film that we're going to get Mac to talk about today is the film that really changed him or changed his perspective on the world or life for himself. So one of those life-changing films, right? There's plenty that are out there. Usually someone tells you, hey, you've got to watch this film. It's amazing. You watch it. Uh, it might challenge you. It might scare you. It might inspire you. But you're never the same after you've seen it. So uh, we all have that film somewhere in our life. So we're going to hear what Max is. And then the third film is a film that you think everyone needs to watch at least once in their life. So it's like if there's a city everyone has to see once in their life, it's New York or maybe it's Paris or London. But if there's a film everyone needs to watch, whether they watch movies or not, or even like that genre, they owe it to themselves to discover this film uh, and connect with it and find out what it's all about. So those are our three categories. So uh, Mac, really keen to hear what your three films are. So let's kick it off with the first one, your all-time favourite film. Would you like to reveal to us uh, what that is? When you put this question to me, of course, there are, like any movie fan, there's dozens of hot contenders, uh, several yes. films that I've watched countless times um, that I could play movie Yoki with. Uh, you know what movie Yoki is? Yep. When, you're, you're literally just like saying the lines along with the characters as they go along. And simply I kind of thought, you know, I could pick something really cool here. I could go with train spotting um, or I could go with a Star Wars, okay? These are all very cool things, uh, very cool movies that have had the accolades and stuff. But I had to say that if I didn't choose this movie, it would be untrue and I'll be denying who I am. If I didn't, it may be really obvious, even to people who are watching and listening uh, and meeting me for the first time here, I'm surrounded by bloody Transformers. Transformers the movie, the... Coming to a theater near you this August. The animated one from <laughs> 1986. It might be predictable for anyone who's met me for three and a half seconds. I drive a bloody car with a number plate that says Decepticon. My motorbike has a number plate that says Autobot. I spend a fortune on these bloody things. So it may be obvious, but it would be untrue to myself if I didn't admit this is the movie I know inside and out, have watched. I'm guessing close to a hundred times. I remember exactly where I was where I first saw it. And when I watched this again yesterday, just to prepare myself for this conversation today, I was playing movie Oki. I was going along with the lines. I was even going along with making the bloody sound effects. <laughs> can, we, can we hear your, uh, your sound effect? Oh, mate, you see, one of the things about this movie is that Nelson Shin, the director, was actually a sound creator for Star Wars. So when you actually, the, the sound of the lightsaber, that actually 
appears quite a few times in this movie. Um, there, there's also the bleep, 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 you know, the R2-D2. That is actually in there as well, you know, a couple of times. Ah, so, there you go. Little Easter eggs <laughs> before Easter eggs are even a thing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm i just going along with it, and I, I, I know it inside out. It's not a perfect film. In fact, it's not... <laughs> It's not even a good film. It's directed really <laughs> poorly. There are tons of animation mistakes. There are characters who appear who who die, and then they appear later in a scene. Um, you know, there's when uh, Optimus Prime dies, which we're going to get to in a minute. That's kind of thing. Uh, yes. Spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah. If you haven't seen, yeah, there's going to be loads of spoilers today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when Optimus Prime dies and passes on the Matrix to Ultra Magnus, for a brief moment, he has the Matrix there. Magnus opens his chest and the Matrix is there. And then suddenly it's not there. And then he puts it in his chest. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So consistency and continuity wasn't really uh, thought of, but who the hell cares, right? Um, And just for anyone who's not watching the video of this and didn't see Mac hold up the DVD, he's referring to the original, original cartoon Transformers film from 1986. Yeah, 1986. It was released in December of yep. 1986 in the UK. There you uh, go. So I saw it just before Christmas. Um, now, none of the Michael Bay movie. I mean, as bad as we can say this is, we can criticise the heck out of this movie, but it's not as bad as any of the Michael Bay ones. That just... <laughs> Right. And it's yep. interesting to bring this up now because, of course, the new trailer for Transformers Rise of the Beast has been yes. dropped in last week. And we see the return of Unicorn. Mind blown. This guy there. You know, yeah. Amazing. It really looks like uh, that film and, and to a, another degree, Bumblebee, were really going back to the roots of the 80s look and feel of the Transformers, which is what I think people wanted in the Michael Bay version of 2007, which we didn't get. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the, the first Michael Bay movie, I mean, like, um, it wasn't it wasn't a terrible film. You know, they got worse no. as they went along. But he was one of the few directors who could actually command the budget required to make these bloody things that we believed in for many, uh, for many years look real. Mm. Uh, and he was one of the few directors that could actually make that happen. We have criticisms of how well he did, but, you know, like with, with sure. the lack of character, there's a bit too much blurry actions. Like, I don't know what the hell's going on on the screen. They improved on it? that. So even though the later movies got worse, we even got um, robot testicles in the second one. Um, <laughs> I remember that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, clang, clang, whatever. Um, yeah. but yeah, the character development wasn't there, but it looked great. If you just take it on what it looked like, amazing. Oh, for sure. Flawless special effects, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, they have their pros and, and but they've got yeah. plenty of cons as well. <laughs> yeah. But the nineteen eighty six. Can you tell us roughly how many times you've watched Transformers? Oh, like can you I count? I Every think. time I bought it on VHS. I yep. wore out my VHS or bought another VHS. I Got on DVD, two maybe three times. Got out on Blu-ray. You know, like you know, it's it's always been there. Yeah, just a staple of your life. Yeah, 100%. yeah. It's it, yeah. it's a comfort movie. I know it's not cool. I end up watching it by myself. I can't be embarrassed about it. You know, like as I say, I can talk about plenty of other cool movies. You know, but it'll be you know. I admit this has been part of my life. It's always been there. Now. Yeah. Let's actually talk about the actual, one of the worst things about this film was, 
Hasbro really wanted the movie to sweep the toy shelves and introduce new characters. So, of course, yep. we all know this guy, Optimus Prime, dies, right? Made a big, you know, they just killed him off. They wanted to replace him with Optimus Prime. What they didn't expect was the emotional attachment that this character had made with kids over, what, two and a half years. And there were plenty of horror stories of kids crying in the th movie theaters, parents leaving the movie theaters with their kids because they were distraught. Um, yep. they didn't I was one of them. Yeah. Were. I mean, I pulled my yeah. eyes out. I still saw the same thing. I actually remember a girl, uh, three rows in front of me, she had her little Optimus Prime toy, you know, sat on, yeah, but she held it on the seat, uh, back of the seat in front. And then when Optimus was dying, she like put him away and started crying. Yeah. It was, it was, it was horrible. Yeah. Just goes to show the impact of of the Transformers and the the culture and uh, how it continues, you know, just continues to appeal to many generations. And it was actually the very first film I saw at the cinema in nineteen eighty six. So I it was that's also one of my earliest memories is going to the movies with my dad, and he told me on the way we're going to go see Transformers, and I'm like, it was the most exciting day of my life. And very vague memories, but I do remember being in a the theater. You know, it all looks so huge and giant because I'd only – can you – would you be able to tell me what month it might have come out in 1986? Right, I, know, I know it's got a, uh, a UK release. Of course, I grew up in the UK. Uh, it was released December, so right before Christmas. I, I do believe I saw it right before Christmas. Now, I can even yeah. tell you yep. when my love Transformers really took off because I really got into the UK comic, okay? My yep. first comic I bought regularly was issue number six. I had to look this up to get the dates right. So <laughs> that's commitment. My first proper comic, okay? And that was a uh, story called Robot Buster, which dealt with the character uh, Buster Wiki, who in the cartoons was actually Spike. Turned out later in law, Spike is actually Buster's brother, whatever. Okay. But right. issue six is my first issue. And that was released on um, that, that comic was out on the 8th of August, 1986. Now, the prequel to. Uh, to Transformers the movie was actually a comic book story called Target 2006. And that was uh, that was started, it was a, uh, a mammoth 12-issue story arc, uh, which started from issue 78. And it started with the disappearance of Optimus Prime, Jazz and Prowl, and they just zoom, disappeared. And like, what right. the hell? And they got replaced by Galvatron, Cyclones and Scourge. And Target 2006, which remains one of my all-time uh, favorite stories to this day, told the story of after the events of Transformers movie, uh, when, you know, when at the end of the movie, Galvatron gets defeated, thrown out into space through the body of Unicorn in space. When he gets out in space, he activates a, uh, a time travel device and takes him, Cyclonus, and Scourge back to 1986 into the comic world where they have a plan to destroy, to build a weapon to destroy Unicron 20 years before he creates Galvatron and uh, basically freeing himself of Unicron slavery. Right, right, cool. That was my introduction because that was the setup and that story pretty much got completed before the movie got released. So I was familiar with, you know, the shock <laughs> Just by being really, the introduction of these fearsome new characters. Mm. So, yeah, that was the amazing. Lead. Yeah, and it's interesting hearing you talk about the time travel and alternate timelines because we're seeing this in a lot of movies today where you're getting these, like uh, Spider Man, um, 
no way home. You know, you've got the three Spider-Mans coming together. You've got the Flash coming out this year, which has got two different Batmans in it, right? So I think we're going to see this. This is a bit of a trend that's going to emerge. And I think it wouldn't surprise me if in these future Transformers films, if they somehow introduce a time travel element and, you know, go back to the events of uh, 2007, because these new films are set in the 80s and 90s. Is that, that's right, isn't it? Like Very before yeah. the events yeah. of Michael Bay's yeah. film, yeah. And so I think there's so much, the, so much, uh, yeah, potential to explore there with with this franchise, isn't it? I, I think that kind of helps, you know, uh, people of a certain generation. You know, we, we've got kids. We want to take our kids to. Well, I don't because I've got kids, but you know, take our kids to uh, to the cinemas to fall in love with these characters all over again. But it kind of like it's a warm and fuzzy for us. It's like new, but it's old. It's kind of like it bridges that gap. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, and. Uh, like I was saying before, it was one of the first films I ever saw and I was just blown away by it. I was, uh, I enjoyed the first film by Michael Bay in 2007. I felt the quality sort of uh, <laughs> definitely went downhill from there. Uh, but the appeal of the Transformers is still there. So, um, you know, and uh, you obviously it just shows its staying power. It's been with you pretty much most of your life and uh, very cool that, uh that's your most favorite all-time film. I think it's uh, probably going to influence some people to go back to the well and and explore that the original, you know, interpretations of the Transformers. Kids loved a good old simple story of good versus evil. It's part mm. of how we form our understanding of of who are the goodies, who are the baddies in real life as well. You know, uh, yep. Optimus Prime is voiced as we know by Peter Cullen, a Canadian actor who. Uh, are you aware of how uh, Peter Cullen found the voice of Optimus? No, no, yeah, tell us this story, yeah. So uh, Peter Cullen had been a voice actor for many years, and uh, when he was approached uh, to audition uh, for the cartoon, of course, Hasbro wanted a cartoon. It was all, it was all, let's face it, the cartoon is all about marketing toys. It's all about selling toys. But uh, Optimus uh, had a biography written by comic book writer Bob Budiansky, who, you know, the tech specs on the back of all the Transformers boxes, you know, like yeah, it tells you, like, uh, Optimus's um, motto is freedom is the right of all sentient beings. Yes. He has a iron bar to and so forth. Yeah. But the yeah. first jogging my memory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of those were written by the same writer, Bob Budiansky. Okay. So the character profile of Optimus Prime, written by Bob Budiansky, which uh, came through to, to the cartoon, was given to a whole bundle of actors. Peter Cullen, uh, you know, took this on, and he was uh, he was reminded very much of his late brother Larry. Now, his older brother Larry was a uh, was a soldier, and one of the uh, Peter looked up to his brother so much. He was like the most stoic, honourable, most inspiring bloke uh, in Peter's life, and he tragically got killed in in action. Uh, but uh, and Peter missed him terribly. So when it actually came to the character profile of Optimus, he saw so much of Larry in Optimus that he just he adopted this uh, this probably brave but strong voice. So I can't do it. Second life. I know this guy. Still, he he was a powerful and inspiring you know voice. He he basically <laughs> was doing his brother Larry's voice, and so. What a legacy for this brave soldier to become one of the most inspiring heroic characters for the last 40 years. What a legacy. Yeah. And you just, and what makes the voice of Optimus Prime so powerful through Peter Cullen is, is he, he's channeling all of that emotion 
and the memory of his brother and his legacy through that voice and that, and it reflects in you know the strength of Optimus Prime. So wow, that's that's fascinating. I had things I like this amazing. you discover from from uh, people like you who just who love this film so much and know all the in, ins and outs of it. That's um, a very cool story. Thanks for sharing that. It doesn't have to be a cool movie to be inspiring and to, 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 to give you something. But there was a moment, I think, in the third Michael Bay movie, I think it was uh, Dark of the Moon, in which yes. uh, is going rogue. And there's actually a moment where he basically goes, kill them all, you know, just like, just just kill them all, just really angry, just kill everyone. And Peter Cullen protested against that because he said, Optimus would not, even in that moment, he would not give that order. This is not Optimus. There you go. And he would know, you know, because he's he's lived with this character since the 80s. So it's his character, you know, he's the life of the character. So very cool, very cool. Well, I think it's safe to say, like, we could have a whole episode just talking about the Transformers with you, Mac, and maybe maybe we'll have you back another time to do that because I think you've got a lot of interesting knowledge and people would love to, to hear that. So uh, remind me to uh, talk to you about that another time. But let's change tack now, if that's okay, and we'll move on to your second film that we're going to feature in this podcast. That's the film that changed you or your perspective on life in the world. Um, so often for people, these are films that are very uh, personal, a uh, film that seems to just arrive at just the right time uh, or open up their eyes and educates them on something that they didn't know about, et cetera, et cetera. So what is that film for you, Mac? Let me take you back to 1997. Fantastic. Uh, I was. Uh, I've been living in Australia just for uh, just over two years at that point. Um, I was uh, pushing 23 years old at, um, in 1997. 1997 was a very cool year for music and art in, in general. I mean, we, we had massive albums like by Radiohead, OK Computer, um, you had the fervor and hymns, you had the talent of that rip hop stuff. Um, and I was discovering Australian culture and I was also discovering myself as a person because I was living by myself for the first time in my life. Um, and I was also trying to really process and come to terms with my sexuality. Um, I had been for a few years saying rather disdainfully that I was bisexual. Um, I was still, you know, seeing uh, girls and trying to talk up my my sexual activities with girls, even though I wasn't, you know, I was getting less and less into that. But it was more of a uh, a shameful, uh, you know, a shameful way of dealing with, uh, you know, I should, I was trying to process that. Really, I was gay, um, and because I was in that transition period where I was, you know seeing girls and guys but but not talking about the guys so much even though that's what I wanted to uh, go so much there was a movie that made a massive difference and took so much stress out of the process and that was Kevin Smith's third film Chasing Amy how was your pseudo date okay I'm telling you she's never even been with a guy you're dating a guy so what if it is true you know you have no shot at getting her into bed Good. Miramax Films presents a comedy that tells it like it feels. Well, she's been around and seen things we've only read about in books. So what'd you do last night? Got lucky. Chasing Amy. Okay. So Brilliant. this was a light bulb moment. And 
the reason uh, for those of you who don't know Chasing Navy, okay, you may know Kevin Smith for his movies like Clerks, More Rats, Dogma. He did Red State recently. He uh, the Jay and Silent Bob uh, movies. He's also uh, been very heavily involved in like Batman animation films, so on and so forth. Uh, yep. he is, he's one of us because he's he's a nerd. He's a comic nerd. He's a he's fan. A, he's the ultimate fanboy, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and this was actually you know kind of like the anti Kevin Smith movie because essentially it was a romantic comedy which didn't bend to any of those genres. I I, I can't stand romantic comedies. I just don't do them. All right, but this is an early film starring Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck is a uh, comic book artist called uh, called Holden, okay? Holden McNeil. And he lives right. with his mate and his, uh, his non-sexual life partner, uh, Banky, who is played by Jason Lee. And they create, uh, they've created this very successful comic book called Blunt Man and Chronic, which is based on Jane and Silent Bob, the characters, okay? And... <laughs> um, and they, they, they kind of seem to be pretty cool Hepcats. They, uh, they're really good friends with another comic book artist called Hooper X, who is a very flamboyant and fabulous, but hardline uh, homosexual black guy um, with a uh, with his comic book uh, called White Hating Coon. Um, oh, that's right. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so they're cool, and they've got a diverse range of friends. Um, <laughs> and Hooper introduces um, Ben Affleck's uh, uh, Holden, McNeil to uh, to a girl called Alyssa. She's another comic book um, creator who's got a book called Idiosyncratic Routine. Mm. And Ben uh, and and Holden falls head over heels in love with her, but it turns out Alyssa's a lesbian. And when he declares her love, uh, his love for Alyssa, she's like, "What the fuck, man? You're 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 you you." Pressing this on me, you know I'm gay, right? Mm. This can't happen. Yeah. But even then, she has to really accept, well, you know what? There's something special in this guy. I really like him because we've formed this great friendship. And I, if I push him away now just because I'm gay, that's just not, I just can't live with that. So they actually fix something off. And everything's kind of cool for a while. And where it gets, and for a start, up to this point, I'm kind of connecting with that because number one, at that point, I'd never really met lesbians. I never spoke to lesbians. I didn't. I had a, a minimalist and very prehistoric view of what gay people were like in general. Right. Um, just like Holden and uh, Banky themselves, they they have some pretty challenging views. And uh, Banky himself uses some uh, language to describe gay people that today. Well, yeah, I was watching it. You know, last couple of days, I was like, yeah, he says that <laughs> word. He says that word quite a lot. Um, yeah, it's amazing how far we've come and yeah, how that word uh, was yeah, a, somewhat acceptable yeah. back then and now it's just shunned upon completely. Yeah, yeah. and yes, yeah. the character is flawed and the character is slightly homophobic um, just because he's just not used to it. And he's, um, but any, uh, so yes, it's, it has data uh, somewhat from that perspective, even though it is a film which shows their flaws and their ego gets in the way of a beautiful relationship blossoming. Mm. What really connected with me, though, was when, uh, when Holden really gets butthurt and discovers that Alyssa has actually had a sexual history before him and that 
His is not the first cock she's ever uh, she's ever had. She's actually had a sexual adventurous. She's had a journey, and he holds like a fucking asshole. He holds her history against her because he can't. Yeah, break he does. And he's pretty bitter, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and there's yeah. this heartbreaking scene. At a ice, you know, they've gone out to an ice skating rink to see a, a ice hockey game, and he's just found out you know, about this, you know, this sex adventure story that you know. Yeah. Just, I mean, to me, it's like this was threesome. I mean, who hasn't had threesomes? I'm not going to ask you, uh, Brian. Uh, but you know, <laughs> to me, I, th- I mean, these days, you know, like people are sex, you know, sexually open, a threesome isn't a big deal. But essentially, Alyssa had a threesome with two guys, and Holden can't process that his ego is so precious. He holds her history against her and he basically breaks up with her. And she says this amazing thing, which really lit my freaking brain on fire and made sense to me. She essentially said, your journey was from A to B. It was so easy from you. You're A to B. Yeah. And I, mine wasn't so simple. I didn't have a definition of how to be gay, of how to be a lesbian or how to be accepted with my friends or anything. And I had these adventures but ultimately it brought me to you and it's, and he just, it's true. You know, like you can't yep. hold your partner's history against them when it has brought them to you. And this I, amazing, so true. Movie, he's mm. such a fucking asshole to her. And yep. <laughs> it suddenly made me realize, you know what? At the time when I was still like seeing girls, you know, I'm like, I'm like it doesn't matter whether I'm homosexual, bisexual or whatever. Let other people work out labels. I'm just going to have sex with the person that I'm having sex with and see how I feel about it afterwards. You know? And it was just such a light bulb movie for me because of these flawed characters and how honest and raw Alyssa Jones, uh, played by the amazing Joey Lauren Adams, who was actually yeah. the partner of Kevin Smith, the director um, yeah. at the time. That's such right. a powerful Such a powerful Yeah. Movie. It, it really is, and it's a very it's a little known gem in a lot of ways. And uh, for any big Ben Affleck fans, I'm sure they're aware of it. And it, I think it came out just before Good Will Hunting hit, and obviously yeah. made him and Matt Damon big stars just for a bit of history. And yeah, it's a film that works on a lot of levels. And I think you really hit the nail on the head there. It's about the the journey of those characters, and that um, they were right for each other, even if it wasn't the right circumstances or the right time. And you know, all these labels and feelings were kind of working against them and all of that. Um, and like you mentioned earlier on, it's like it appears on the front cover like it's this romantic comedy, you know, and, and I have a bit of a connection to the film as well. Like when I was 14 or 15, I was really getting into movies and one of my older sister's boyfriends said, oh, you've got to, you've got to watch Chasing Amy. I'm like, what's it about? It's like this guy who chases this girl and she's, you know, really a really cool chick. That's how he described it. And I'm like, nah, I'm not into romantic comedies, no thanks. Um, somehow I had discovered Clerks and Mole Rats and then was like, right, I'm going to work my way through the Kevin Smith library and then realised that Chasing Amy is his third film. And like, oh, okay, I can see Jane Silent Bob are also on the cover. I'll give this a watch. They don't show up too much later in the film, but it's a very good scene that they have as well. Uh, yeah, well and then I watched them like, hang on, this is not your traditional romantic comedy. Yeah, sorry. Of, of all the view askew, of, uh, they call it the view askew universe because uh, Kevin right. Smith's production is called View Askew, and all these movies are connected. They have uh, similar characters that go all the uh, same characters that that's right. Up, you know? Yeah, but it's yeah, this whole world, isn't it? 
Anton will have the smallest role in this one compared to the others. 100%, um, but a really pivotal role. And I think it's uh, one of Silent Bob's finest moments as well. <laughs> so I watched that film when I was about 15 years old and, and I was thinking like, can guys and girls be friends? That was my question as a teenager, right? Um, and then it looked at I looked at the relationship between Holden and Alyssa and where it goes in the end is like, it's not a happy ending. You know, it's not a romantic comedy where the couple get together, you know, that formula of boy meets girl, boy likes girl, boy loses girl, boy wins her back, etc. There's elements of that, but then it has a very truthful ending, which is pretty real to life. And that's what really made an impression on me. Um, and I think everyone has a, a very different connection to this film. It's one of those films that speaks to everybody. And I think it's a great, it's a great choice that you've, that you've uh, shared with us. And yeah, is, is there, I guess, uh, anyone who might be really against the idea of a film like that or see it as a romantic comedy, how might you encourage them to watch it? What would you say to a person who's like, no, I don't watch See, stuff like that? I've always spoken about this film. I've spoken about it so many times over the years. I, I've recommended it to countless people because it dares to ask the questions that, you know, that a lot of people do actually have. Now, it's okay to evolve and to acknowledge that you've evolved. Now, I'm not going to say them here, but when I was younger, I had some opinions about, for example, trans people that, quite frankly, I'm really embarrassed about. And print, you know, like, I, I've evolved, you know, like I, I, I said certain things which I believe were facts and I've since learned were absolutely not facts and uh, were really quite hurtful and I'm really quite embarrassed about that. But there are moments and opportunities to learn and evolve. And this was certainly one of those opportunities for me. And I think it's an opportunity for other people as well, because there is an amazing scene um, just after, you know, actually in the, the lesbian, it, it turned out to be a lesbian club that um, that Banky and Holden have been invited to uh, because Hooper is tending bar and, uh, and Alyssa's going to be there and Holden thinks, hey, this is my opportunity. I'm going to, I'm going to hook up. With, with Alyssa, and he keeps, like, this prehistoric troglodyte is talking about, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have sex tomorrow, you know? Like, yeah. I'm going to take this girl home, yeah. And yet, you know, and she sing, uh Alyssa gets caught up on stage to sing a powerful song, which I love to this day. Uh, it's actually an original written for this film called Alive, which is so sensual and so longing for her partner. And Holden, like the fucking egotist he is, he thinks, hey, he's, she's singing about me. She's, uh, she's, this is her serenading me to get me into bed tonight. And actually, <laughs> she's singing it to, uh, to Kelm, her, uh, her, well, she's not quite a girlfriend, but someone who she's got a lot of love for. And at the end, make me feel, I have to put you come here. Oh, That's no, it. Here I go. <laughs> and Kelm goes uh, up and it's long. Amazing. The alarms go off. My God. So the penny, drops like gravity 10 times and you can see <laughs> you can see holden's brain explode and you see Becky like look at her. hang on a minute yeah there's a lot of chicks here just made that I connection yeah, yeah. Right. but yeah. the point is when they're actually sat down in the booth afterwards banky actually asks a lot of questions that similar to what i've been asked as a gay man to people who who don't get it but they're mm. asking questions they don't know and that's cool you know because people who ask questions are asking to learn and he's saying yep. ridiculous things that you know you would get on an episode of you can't ask that yes yeah. instead 
So, same as you're a lesbian, do you just like look at yourself naked in the mirror all the time? Yeah. <laughs> what a question. <laughs> what a question. Some people are asking, some people ask that, you know, they, they, they don't know. Mm, you know? Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a hint of perversion in that question, obviously, coming from Banky because he's so, so immature. But uh, yeah, it's uh, like he's a, uh, how he's just so candid. He's just like, oh, I'm going to, all the questions I've ever wanted to ask, I'm going to ask. And he makes, a complete fool of himself, but you know it's a great it's scene. Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. It's cringeworthy, and we like cringe comedy. I mean, like The Office is cringe comedy. You know, like did you really? But you can't help but laugh. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Alyssa and Banky actually bond uh, over comparing sex wounds. You know, like look yeah. at this. This is from where you know, check, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, well, I got that bit. They're comparing wounds that they got, injuries that they got through sex, realizing, okay, it doesn't matter whether you're a lesbian or straight. We both do the same freaking things. We both have the same Absolutely. And that scene things. is actually a, a tribute to the, um, the scene in Jaws where Quint and Hooper are comparing their, um, their shark injuries. Because if you look at a lot of Kevin Smith films, he references uh, Jaws quite a lot. So have a look for that in his other films, and you'll you'll pick up on that. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a tri- it's a tribute to that scene in Jaws where they're sitting on the boat, and then Quint tells the story of being on the Indianapolis and how it sunk, and all the sailors were killed by sharks. And yeah, do you remember that scene from Jaws? I do. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's and a tribute to Jaws. Love there you it. go. Fan service one hundred and one. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I guess for anyone listening, like, you know, you've probably heard of Kevin Smith. Of course, you know Ben Affleck. If you want to go back to the 90s, and obviously it is dated in a lot of its language and and yeah. phrases like Max said, which might be insulting, but, you know, it was what was how things were said at the time. And if you, yeah. I guess if you I mean, can look past that, there's a beautiful movie there. 1997 yeah. was a time when, as I said, as I was actually, actually experiencing, it wasn't a time that you could tell everyone that I'm gay. I mean, seriously, now I don't even say I'm gay. I just refer to Rob, my partner. And if people, people just might momentarily go, oh, yeah. But then also, I'm a flight attendant. I'm sorry. We're legally obligated to be gay if you're a flight attendant. It's just the law. <laughs> um, you know, oh, you're a flight attendant. Great. Who's your boyfriend? Um, <laughs> but, you know, in 1997, you couldn't tell everyone. Okay? We're talking That's about right. 25 years ago, whatever. Yeah. Not that long ago in this game of things, when you think about it, you know, just we've come yeah. a long way. It's still a long way to go, I believe. But, you know, the, I'm still there have been some leaps and bounds. Because I never dreamed of it happening when I was a kid, just because I'd be, it'd been so browbeaten into me. I went to a bloody religious school. Of course, men aren't, uh, of course, gays aren't going to be able to get married. That's, that's just not how it's done. I never dreamed of it ever happening. And I, I think it's amazing. That it is. I can't. I, I still can't believe that it's actually a thing in many many countries today. And I think it's wonderful. One word. You're my wildest dreams, literally. Yeah, and that's that's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, thank you for for sharing more about your background and and your and your journey as well. Um, you know, it just goes to show that uh, at, at any stage of life, sometimes there will be a film that speaks directly to you to where you are in life, and it can help you figure things out you know um that's the power of film you know so i think a great a great film a great addition and um to this conversation so thank you very much mac and and it's actually in my top 10 chasing amy it's uh, i've got the dvd behind me somewhere love it love that film to death it's great so now for our last film if we can um change uh tact again and um 
sort of similar in vain to the second category, like where this is a film that's changed you and usually the films we recommend everyone should watch is because they are profound and moving and or they're just mind-blowingly good. Um, like I remember walking out of The Matrix and saying to everybody, you have to go and see The Matrix. And they're like, I don't like action. I don't like sci-fi. I don't like Keanu Reeves. I'm like, forget all that. This movie is going to change everything, and it did. <laughs> so go and watch it. For the benefit of people who are watching, can you just lift up your coffee cup a moment? Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> good, good reminder there. I forgot I had that there, and it's there's a little bit of coffee in it, but it's cold now, so I won't drink that. Um, but my point, I guess, is the segue into the third category is uh, there are films out there that um, uh, are important. You know, films, I guess, first and foremost, are, are entertainment and escapism, but film has the power to change the world. You know, and and uh, create a movement and um, change perspectives and and etc. Um, or it's just a classic film in every sense of the word, like a, a groundbreaking masterpiece. That if you don't see it, then you haven't lived. <laughs> so, what is that film for you, Mac? That you would recommend everyone needs to see sooner rather than later? Well, this choice actually came to me pretty easily, uh, and there's a wonderful bit of accidental. Uh, poetry to this choice because my first movie choice uh, Transformers the movie um, was not a critical success um, but it eventually became big and it was the yep. final movie starring Orson Welles the great filmmaker ah yes it was, yes it was it was his last film and I he I he actually derided and uh he was so sick and pretty much on his deathbed when he actually recorded the lines they had to digitally uh, produce his lines to make them audible and he uh, distinctly uh, said that uh, today I played a toy something uh, something for something or other and they lose something and he basically hated it and then he yeah. died <laughs> so with with accidental poetry I actually have chosen Citizen Kane Kane is a hero and a scoundrel, a no-account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. I think everyone should see it. It was, of course, his first film, his first foray into filmmaking period. He Which is incredible. Screenplay. He, he starred in it as Charles, uh, Charles Foster Kane. He directed the film. Uh, and it was released in 1941. And I yeah, well, I wasn't alive. I know I'm, I'm a little bit old, but uh, I, I wasn't alive in 1941. I didn't catch it in the cinema the first time. Um, <laughs> and it was a critical and commercial bomb when it's first released, and he never really had full control of any of his movies again. Um, but yeah, but this is a masterpiece. Why it's important to me, I got introduced to it when I actually studied a Bachelor of English with a unit in film and television at university. university. And one of the biggest takeaways I took from this film 
was in a good film or a good director, every frame is precious. Every frame is a gift and everything in a frame has been chosen for a reason. And that's even subconsciously affects on how I'm actually talking to today because I pick this scene with these transformers to show who I am. I pick the lighting, the contrast to show off my red and blue hair, which has been colored to be like Optimus Prime. Uh, <laughs> Love that, by the way. Um, but, you know, if you, if you, a good director will, will, uh, will pick everything in the frame. Everything is a choice of what you see and experience in a film. And I've been able to use that lesson and apply it to see what other directors are actually saying with their films. Yep. Seeing those uh, coded meanings. And Citizen Kane was a masterpiece. And of mm. course, no, no color. This is a pure black and white. There's a lot of you know stark uh, blacks and whites and grays. Um, he uses a uh, depth of perception. He uses uh, low camera angles to uh, to give an impression of someone who's uh, who's towering above their station. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of that in the film, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's so much. Uh, influence on all the movies that we've grown to love over the years and the decades since that we can see, you know, the influence of this goes through, you know, through the whole cinema. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I just, in preparation for our chat, I watched it for the first time last night, which, you know, as a bona fide movie buff, some people would be like, oh, what, you haven't seen Citizen Kane? And I'm like, no, I've seen, but have you seen Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers? And they're like, what? I'm like, well, there you go. It just depends on what your flavour is at the time, but I was blown away by it. The fact that it's was made and released 82 years ago now. Um, yeah, because we're, we're now in 2023. And how it holds up as a film. And it just bursts onto the screen, doesn't it? Like it just dives right in. You're just drawn in and captivated straight away. Who is Citizen Kane? And he does such a great job of building up the enigma and mysteriousness of this character. And then you uh, get to know him and realize, you know, that he has a bit of a sad story. But all the things you touched on from like a filmmaker's perspective, it is the film that all filmmakers aspire to to recreate in their own films. Um, and it was, yeah, it was incredible. I was, uh, I don't know what else to say about it, but I agree with you. It's just a film you need to watch. Yeah. For those of you who aren't aware of the concept now, yeah, this is very hard because there's, this is you know, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, mandate you know, in, you know, in this film. Like, there's, there's a McGuffin, there's, there's a twist at the end. You know, there's, a, there's a big reveal, okay? Now, the fact that this was, the reveal was given away in a bloody episode of The Simpsons. Uh, That's right. <laughs> well, so I'm, I, I'm going, I want to try to not give it away, but I don't think we can. But let's try and summarise what this film is. So, sure, let's go that way, yeah. Charles Walter Kane is, uh, as a child, we first meet him as a child, who was actually played by Sonny Bupp, I believe his name was, who was actually the last remaining, uh, last surviving cast member from that film. He finally died in 2007. So, yeah, he was the last uh, cast member to die. Oh, uh, of course, yeah, being a child, yeah. Wow. So uh, Charles Walter Kane uh, was uh, basically inherited massive wealth, but the um, there was a catch. He was to be taken from his uh, from his family who were living in poverty, and we first meet the family uh, at a boarding house in uh, in a very wintry, snowy day. And mm -hmm. there's uh, there's the boy Kane uh, enjoying his innocence playing in the snow, and he gets taken away 
by this bland uh, gray man who will be his custodian. And at the age of 25, he gets control of this wealth and rather than focus on the, the gold mines he, uh, and the, the properties, he decides to buy up newspapers because I think it'd be kind of fun. Now, at this point, right. <laughs> that the script was essentially uh, based as much as possible on the real-life story of, uh, of what's his name, Hearst, um, William Randolph Hearst. Who oh, right. Yes. Yeah, who was a massive media mogul. Mm. And it's, the, the story really tracks from when he gets his wealth and starts getting all the things and living a life of indulgence and doing things on a whim. And he essentially launches America's first proper, uh, actual tabloid, The Inquirer, yep. Yep. which champions itself as like, you know, fighting for, for the man and to, you know, um, basically what a current affair thinks it's doing these days, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very idealistic, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, and and truth be damned, you know, never let uh, accuracy or journalistic integrity get in the way of a great story or selling uh, selling newspapers. Um, mm. So yeah, basically, his his ego bloating up bigger and bigger and bigger, and his life as he gets older and he goes through failed marriages, um, you know, a, a failed run for politics, uh, where his ego just you know, he literally stands for for Congress saying, "I don't have a plan. I will work that out when I get elected." Reminds me of someone, doesn't it? Mm. Actually, the, that was going to be my next question. While I was watching it, I couldn't help but draw comparisons to, you know, the life and story of one Mr. Donald Trump. And I often wondered, is Donald Trump's, you know, I guess his mission in life, if you want to call it that, does that come from the character of Citizen Kane? Does, like, he envision himself being this Citizen Kane who's like, I'm going to conquer everything, um, I'm a womanizer, I'm greater than I really am. Um, nothing will stop me. I'm going to be rich and have lots of stuff. Um, I, I couldn't help. But would you agree with that? That there was some uh, some similarities there. Um, and I make no apology to any uh, Trump supporters who are who are watching this because I respect people of all opinions, apart from people who think that Trump is a good person. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, there are certain overlaps, but uh, and so there are definite uh, consistencies through both characters. Uh, whereas Kane was fictional, based on an actual person, Trump is someone that even today we pinch ourselves like, surely he's fictional. Like, I remember when Trump first <laughs> came to power, the ridiculous things he was saying, and I actually said quite openly, two or three years time, we are going to be finding for the days when all he was saying was bragging about grabbing women by the pussy, because that's going to be small fry compared to what he's going to do two, three years later. Boy, yeah. was that true? Um, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. but Kane didn't come to power. He had failed attempts to get into Congress. So he retreated gradually more into himself and he ended up barricading himself in, uh, in a self-made uh, fortress uh, with all the riches, a, a castle called Xanadu, uh, atop of a mountain that he had built from his insane riches. And essentially the film is the quest for the meaning behind his last word. As he dies, he he fondles a, uh, a snow globe, drops it, and he says, Rosebud. 
Yes. What is Rosebud? And as the journalist who forms the uh, the narrative of the story, so that's got to mean something. We can say all sports fans' life. He, he lived yep. his life in um, now. What? But and the key to finding out who Rosebud was or what it was, the key to finding out who he was, and that's true. Ultimately, the journalist never finds out, and the people in Kane's world don't find out. But we, as the viewer, do see in the very final few seconds the tragic truth and meaning of uh, of Rosebud, and it tells yeah. the story. Yeah, like um, like you, I I uh, knew what it was about before I'd seen the film, um, but just to the whole pursuit of what is what is Rosebud, what is Rosebud, and like like you said, his life was all sort of about showmanship and like look at me, look at me, but at the end of the day without giving too much away for people who are now going to go and watch Citizen Kane because Max says you need to go and watch Citizen Kane, and I second that, <laughs> is uh, the reveal behind that just shows you that he was a person and there was that little boy inside him that was unresolved and hadn't really had the life he should have had. Um, but just going back quickly to the comparisons to to Trump as well, I think if you're trying to understand who Trump is and where he's coming from, a good way to uh, look at that would be by watching Citizen Kane. And I think if Citizen Kane existed today in this social media world and all of that, he might have actually succeeded and entered government because, you know, that's what's helped Trump build his power was the image he conveyed on social media. Back in the days of Citizen Kane, the newspaper was where the power was, um, and he certainly succeeded in, in that area. Now, in preparation for this conversation, I did actually make notes of all my three movies. There's three pages of notes here about Citizen Kane alone, right? There was one <laughs> screenshot to really tie into what you're actually saying about Trump. There is actually a screenshot that I actually took of when Kane actually went for Congress. Uh, Kane's own paper, The Inquirer, printed up two front pages, one to champion his, uh, celebrate his success in being elected and one to, uh, to report his failure. And you probably can't see that, but it says, fraud at the polls. So the headline that they end up releasing is Child Foster Kane defeated fraud at the polls. Wow. Bam. There you go. So in a way, like whether it's Kane or Trump, they're going to try and engineer their success and alter people's perceptions. And I think uh, that's really a, the way these kind of guys rise to power. So it is a rise to power. It's also the story of a fall, you know, the fall from power and the fall from grace. Um, but I guess going back to the core of the film and its legacy today, it's just, like you said, it is a masterpiece and it's a film you need to watch and just admire how well, bloody well it holds up 80 years later and will continue to hold up. Um, and a lot of films uh, come and go. Not many have that sort of staying power. You know, other ones that come to mind for me are films like The Godfather, um, you know, of 1972, the original, and how that's impacted films. And, yeah, I guess if we... Just sort of looking at the three films you've mentioned, is it sort of brought to mind any other films that you sort of had a similar, similar viewpoint or feelings about that maybe you'd like to give a, a quick shout-out to? I mean, oh, wow. Um, excuse me. <laughs> um, I mean, High Fidelity uh, is is terrific, uh, based on the book by Nick Hornby. Um, I, what I have noticed is there is a consistent theme through what's my favourite films. I like stories of flawed characters because they 
have helped me identify my own flaws and helped me evolve along the stage of my life. Uh, I think only a, a rampant narcissist would stop and believe I already know everything. Uh, I already know what I need to know. I have no more to learn. Uh, I'm, I'm the best person I can possibly be today. Uh, I have never thought that. I've always um, been very conscious of my shortcomings and uh, and hope I can improve every day. So there are, uh, I like High Fidelity because uh, Rob Gordon is a music fan like me, but he's terribly flawed and a bit of an asshole. Uh, but he learns to be a better partner by the end of it. Um, War of the Worlds, which Orson Welles, uh, I haven't even touched on the fact that Orson Welles directed a, uh, a radio play of H.G. Uh, Wells' classic, uh, War of the Worlds. Right, yeah. is, I, I could have easily found a way of uh, putting War of the Worlds into uh, this conversation had it not been for the fact that there hasn't been a good film based on it. Um, there's been the, the genre-defining book, which I love and I've read countless times, uh, there has been uh, a 1960s film based on it, which uh, it wasn't that great, uh, but you know, uh, there was the terrible Tom Cruise film, which is best left buried alongside Michael Bay's works. Um, <laughs> it was incredibly disappointing BBC TV series, which had such promise uh, two years ago. Mm. Um, but there was the amazing uh, musical by Jeff Wayne, released as a double album, prog rock album in the 70s. But the story lives on uh, and it fires my imagination in so many ways um, because of the various contributions from all these uh, incarnations and interpretations. So yeah, I love a story of challenge. I love a story that, uh, you know, I think we all seek a bit of challenge and a bit of struggle and a bit of a bit of happily ever after, not the chasing yep. Hercules one, yeah, it doesn't go on yet, uh, but a bit of, I look for evolution in characters. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes we, we search out films where we feel we can relate to the character's journey and we want to see how they handle a situation that we feel maybe we've handled before, uh, we're handling now, or we might handle in the future. Because most films give you a sense of closure, or if they don't, they at least give you an idea on, hey, here's how I'm, I could handle this possible situation. So, you know, we take the character, we take the journey with that character. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, that's definitely been a theme that's... Um, been resonant in all of your your films that you've talked about today is how the main character um struggles to uh, be who they are um and has a lot of opposition and you know possibly a lot of power and influence but learns a really important lesson as well so um great films all very different from each other and diverse which is the whole point of uh this podcast is let's explore films in a non-biased non-judgmental way um and some people listening will be like yes 100 i agree with you Others are like, never heard of that film before. I'm going to go check that out. So if if that's the uh, result of this listening to this podcast for you out there, fantastic. You know, your next guests, you know, what films your next guests choose. Yes. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Absolutely. So I guess a closing question, if I can throw this out to you, and um, you don't have to have. Uh, an answer straight away, you might want to ponder on it, but uh, what would you like to see happen, you know, in films in the future, or is there something you think it's is going to happen? Like, what what's the future of movies look like? What are you looking forward to? See, I would like to see an evolution or an option that we don't currently have where people, because of COVID, 
have still stayed away from the, uh, from the cinemas, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have that uh, experience anymore of, hey, Brian, how are you free next Friday? Shall we meet at the cinema and just, sit, just go and see what's there and just pick a movie? Shall we, shall we see what's on, right? And yeah. just go and see movie? Um, likewise, we don't have going to Blockbuster Video or Video Easy or whatever and perusing the shelves and being inspired. Oh. That looks interesting. Read the back. Yeah. But this one, okay, let's give this one a shot. You know? I miss video stores. I really miss those days. <laughs> we just don't have that. I, I would like to see some sort of evolution where we get to savor the choice more and make mm. more choices. And unfortunately, people have got such short attention spans that they can't help but watch TV shows or movies without playing Candy Crush or, um, yeah, on their phones. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. They don't have the attention anymore. And that, mm. it's such a shame because I made a point of when I watched these three films in the last couple of days, you know, to actually pay attention. You know, I switched off Facebook and, uh, you know, um, Sure, I may have stopped to make a cup of coffee now and again, but, uh, you know, I wanted to pay attention. And there were things that I had missed or had even remembered wrong. That, that scene that I talked about in the ice rink with, with Chasing Amy, the meltdown yep. scene, the years I actually uh, spoke about that scene being in the rain. But no, there's two meltdown argument scenes. The first one was in the rain, and the second one is out, and the real key one that I've actually spoken about wasn't in the rain, is in the uh, car park of the ice rink. Right. And I can't believe on that detail. Mm. So, yeah, I would just like to see yep. people falling a bit more in love with the choice and the selection of incredible movies that are out there. Yeah. And and I 100% agree with you. And, like, not just sitting there and scrolling through Netflix and being like, there's so much to watch, but I can't choose because it's overwhelming and I'm just looking at the name and the poster and the title. But, like you said, going to the video store and, Strolling up and down the the lane, the aisles, choosing those five weeklies. Remember, you could only choose five, um, unless you got ten and paid double. But it was like, okay, I'm going to walk out of here with five movies. And um, and you you thought about the movie you wanted to watch. Sometimes you had to seek out a film, and if they didn't have it, they could order it in for you, or you go on the waiting list for it, and you'd build up this anticipation to watch this film. And I think uh, you know, that's something that's yeah, sadly missing. And um. Who knows? I mean, we're seeing vinyl records come back with a vengeance. Maybe we'll see video stores come back and, you know, I think, you know, because everything um, nostalgic is new again, so maybe uh, maybe it'll come I, back. I, I, I hope so I as well. I think it's quite easy. We have so many choices. We have Netflix, Paramount Plus. I use Paramount Plus a lot, to be honest. Uh, they've got a lot of good stuff. Disney, so on and so forth. If they just change their interface to be like a video shelf, we can actually like... Uh, genius. Yeah, you know, like, you just yep. have them all camera because they're just bunched up by lines which have no order, there's no alphabetical, get the choice to arrange them by alphabetical order, flip them around, look at the artwork, be inspired, sure, add a bonus, immediately have the trailer playing on the top half of the screen, whatever. It just, I would love to see a simulated video store online. Oh, I like that idea. I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, um, I'm sure people listening would agree with you. I think that's that's where we need to go back. You know, sometimes to move forward, we have to go back, don't we? So, <laughs> I, you know, I really, I share that enthusiasm with you, Mac, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. So, all right, well, we could obviously talk forever, mate, and um, we will talk outside of this podcast, of course, but, um, you know, as our time comes to a close, you know, thank you very much for sharing your stories uh, with us and your three very special films. 
um, films that, you know, I've watched and enjoyed one for the first time last night and I'll go back to and watch it again. Loved Citizen Kane. Um, Transformers the movie I haven't seen in a long time. I need to rediscover that. Chasing Amy I've seen more time than I can count. So anyone else listening, you know, hopefully this has uh, shed some light on films you've seen and maybe you'd like to look at it at in, in a different way now or you've never seen them and you can go and discover them, uh, you know, and create your own story. Um, so thank you, Mac, for joining us today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the, on the podcast. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.